I will be referring to several different passages of Scripture this morning. To begin our consideration of the hymn of focus, I will read just one verse, Habakkuk 2.20. Good hymns, those marked by sound theology and a fitting match of text and music, have endured because they are timeless and because they are based on scriptural truth. Let all mortal flesh keep silence has ancient roots. This hymn certainly fits the description of a good hymn. Hear God's word. Habakkuk 2.20, this one verse. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for the awe that we are filled with when we stop for a moment and think what it means to say that our Savior has descended. Lord God, I pray that we would have an elevated view of the Lord Jesus Christ today as a result of what we hear and consider. I pray, Lord, that all that we contemplate would be according to your word and that it would manifest itself in our lives in the simplest ways, that we would live lives of worship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are truly blessed to have uh, the ancient words of this hymn still circulating in the church here in the year 2005. It's quite possible that these words or a similar variation of these words were sung or chanted in worship gatherings in the apostolic church. That's how far back at least the core of these words most likely go. I personally find such a connection with our ancient brothers and sisters absolutely invigorating. Uh, Contrary to what is the popular uh, spirit of the age, which I consider somewhat chronologically snobbish, those who have come before us have much to teach us. And this hymn is one such example, one of my favorites for that reason. To summarize this hymn, very simply, let all mortal flesh keep silence entreats us to stand as the King of kings and Lord of lords descends on earth to vanquish the very powers of hell. It is a call to worship. Considering the story of how this hymn came to the pages of our particular hymnal, is also very interesting and, I think, enlightening. The origin of the words uh, comes from a liturgy called the Liturgy of St. James, which is dated in the 4th century. Your hymnal will always write the, the most complete manuscript we have for anything. That's why it says the 5th century. But we have an almost complete liturgy, of the St. James Liturgy, from the 4th century. That, uh, to give a bit of context, is around the time Augustine lived. Actually, shortly before the time Augustine lived, where these words come to us, and we have in written form in Syriac and in Greek. We found a complete manuscript of the St. James Liturgy in the 5th century, but we have enough to piece together from the 4th century to see how these words held tight up through the 5th century. However, that is not likely the origin of the words. It goes back much further than that. The reason why the liturgy is called the Liturgy of St. James is because it is attributed to the Apostle James himself the half-brother of Jesus, the writer of the book of James, and the one who was martyred early in the church's life, probably shortly after that great uh, council at Jerusalem recorded in Acts chapter 15, where the gospel needs clarifying. In fact, if anyone were to say any one individual apostle was over the other apostles, it isn't Peter. James would be the one, if you were to pick, who was uh, the in the hierarchy of apostles. If you look at Acts 15, James makes a definitive statement on what the gospel is. Shortly after that, in the church in Jerusalem, 
we have recorded James being killed by a mob, upset with his preaching the gospel. This liturgy that this hymn comes from is attributed to the time of James. Now, likely what happens is over time, the liturgy gets added to and it gets longer and longer. The liturgy of St. James would take us two and a half hours to go through. So if you think our bulletin takes a while, it would take two and a half hours to go through the liturgy. And just for clarification, liturgy really simply is order of worship. Uh, In the ancient church, as they would uh, discover new ways in which to aid the worshiper in biblical worship, those things would be added. I'm talking over long periods of time. It wasn't like they just decided, let's try it this week. Over a long time and contemplation, the liturgies of the ancient church were built. And it leaves for us a beautiful record of the worship life and depth of faith of our forefathers. And so it would be sort of like a thousand years from now, someone finding a copy of our bulletin and recognizing, what can we tell about a Redeemer Presbyterian church back in the 21st century based on what we see in this liturgy? What can they tell about us? We can tell a lot about the ancient church, in particular, the church of the 4th century, Augustine's time, by this liturgy called the St. James Liturgy. But it may have roots even further back than that, maybe even to the times of the apostle, hence the name, the St. James Liturgy. What happened is these words really fell into disuse. They were in Syriac, a language that is more more or less obsolete. And even the Greek language it was written in isn't spoken so much today. So an Anglican priest named Gerard Moultrie in 1864 translated this particular hymn or these words out of the St. James Liturgy. They fell around the time that you would participate in communion in the service. He extracted those words that were sung or chanted and translated them into English. That was in 1864. Some 45 years later, Ralph Vaughan Williams married the text with the tune what's known as the Picardy tune, which is named for a region in France. Slow and somber is kind of the, so- the sound. Although if you pay- play it faster, it sounds more fierce and confrontational almost. So in 1906, for the first time, this hymn was published the way we have it in our hymnal today. Yet, I think you see the words go far, uh, far into the history of our church. Really, this is a communion hymn as well as an Advent hymn. And that's really the purpose of it in the order of liturgy, to awaken us to this amazing picture of God taking on flesh and at the same time in a sacramental, mysterious way, giving himself to us and then having that represented in the table, the cup and the bread. It's an Advent hymn and a communion hymn. Now, let's consider the lyrical content in the biblical text, uh, biblical depth together, because every one of these verses is derived from a particular biblical text. The first verse of the hymn, which is there listed for you on your outline, proclaims simply, Christ is our Lord. And it is based on two particular passages with two particular notions. First, the verse says, Let all mortal flesh keep silence, and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly-minded. For with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage to demand. This opening of a worship service is the opening of Christ's coming to earth. But the two important biblical topics addressed in these short words are as follows. First, the need for reverence when considering the incarnation of our Lord. Habakkuk 2.20 forecasts the day when Christ himself would come into his temple, but it always talks about the heavenly temple in the sense that God is present on the throne over all creation. 
But the Lord is in his holy temple, Habakkuk 2.20 says. Let all the earth keep silence before him. There are some things, even for me, that render us speechless. In the presence of God, there is nothing an earthly being could really say. I mean, we may try. You ever have a situation where you know in your heart you probably shouldn't say something at this moment, but you still find yourself saying it? That happens to me probably more often than not. You know, it could be a time of uh, mourning. I was at a funeral of a uh, dear aunt of mine, and I just felt like I needed to say something. You know what? There are some times where you just don't have to speak. When the Lord is in his holy temple, we do not need to speak. When we're in his presence, reverence is our first order. But look again at something uh, that is displayed in that first verse. For with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage to man. I will address this further later as we apply these uh, truths, but consider why Jesus came. It was not to beg anyone for anything. Christ's coming was to confirm his lordship over creation, not to beg people to accept him. He was just starting the earthly time-space process of exacting his lordship, which was true, but now he was going to manifest it in time and space. The angel's reaction to Christ's coming is, again, not one of, oh, good, he's going to save people. It's rather, look at the plan of redemption forecasted for years and years and years and from eternity past, now coming into play. With blessing in his hand, he comes full homage to demand. I want you to think about those two things. He comes to demand homage. But this is not some ogre or some terrible dictator. This is the king of kings, the lord of lords, who also is our elder brother. And as he comes and as we give him his proper homage, there's blessing in his hand. He's not coming to force people in the sense that it'll be against their will. Those people who come to him, their will is totally changed by his spirit. And they come willingly to him. And those who don't will be forced to bow, but it's in a totally different sense as defeated, uh, captive enemies, but still to give honor and glory to him. But blessing comes with homage given. A wonderful picture. And Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So God the Father says, God the Son, to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This Psalm 110 is repeated many times in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews itself, speaking of the Lordship of Christ, which is playing itself out even now through God's work in his church. The plan of God is to give all things to his son's dominion. The incarnation starts this process. This is why we stand in silence when the king comes. While demanding homage, Christ blesses those who give it. Look at the second verse of this great hymn is it really declares that Christ is our sustenance or our spiritual food. King of kings, yet born of Mary. This amazing comparison. King of kings, yet born of Mary. As of old on earth he stood. A reference to the fact that not only is Christ eternal, that there were pre-incarnate uh, manifestations or presences of Christ. Uh, that person that stood in the furnace with Daniel's friends. The second person of the Trinity in his pre-incarnate form. So this is not one who just came on the scene, but has witnessed all of the plan of redemption, not only was in on the plan of redemption, witnessed all of it, and by God's power was used to exact much of it. Lord of Lords in human vesture. That's the Lord of Lords, yet in human vesture. All these comparisons. In the body and the blood, he will give to all the faithful his own self 
for heavenly food. This has been a verse with much discussion, and we'll get to more of that discussion again towards our application. However, this is a reference to the great bread of life discourse that Jesus gives in John chapter 6, and then uh, the recapitulation of this by Paul when speaking of the Lord's Supper, the words that we use every week when we talk about the Lord's Supper. But John 6, 48 and following says this, Jesus speaking, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Remember, what he is doing here in these, this language is using himself as the real fulfillment of all the Old Testament had prophesied. And he's speaking against the backdrop of those things which the people in those days understood, manna, actual physical manna, and the, the fact that it had to constantly be brought again by God every day. And he's just comparing himself to the temporal nature of those things that forecasted or foreshadowed him. And now he's speaking of himself as the true fulfillment of all of it. And there is without a doubt a mysterious, hence the word sacrament, a mysterious aspect to this giving of his body and his blood. We have to walk on two sides in between two fences. One on the side that simply relegates this to some kind of memorial that we do to check off to say we did it each year. And also the side that would say it's actually becoming his body and his blood, which is heinous. So you have these two sides that frankly I think are equally heinous when the mystery lies in the middle with Christ giving his body and his blood. That's the beauty, I think, of the Reformers and the way they handled this issue. They saw the mystery of it, recognized that this is truly a sacrament. It's a means of grace. It's a way in which God has decided he will help build up and edify his people. It's so important, in fact, that we should not consider our discipleship process or our maturing complete without regular participation in the Lord's Supper, a means of grace he has given. In the hymn, when understood in this sense, accents the importance of Regular participation in the body and the blood of Christ as represented by the table. The wonderful mystery of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. This is what uh, Paul then refers to in 1 Corinthians 11. I receive from the Lord what I also have delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Clearly more than a memorial. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment. On himself, this mysterious supper called the Lord's Supper, a way in which God has ordained to give us strength. It is a way in which our body and our soul feel connection. We are body-soul nexuses. And when we have something physical that we actually ingest, it is very similar to receiving an actual hug 
from God. His spiritual presence is his real presence. He truly is here. As the bread and the cup represent him. The third verse speaks of Christ as our light. The one who gives us revelation. Look at the verse. Rank on rank. The host of heaven spreads. It's vanguard on the way. So another beautiful picture. The beginning. The the worship service has begun. And now all the angels line the corridor as the king makes his way through. The host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way as the light of light descendeth from the realms of endless day. So from heaven, from the, the side of his father, comes the Son of God that the powers of hell may, van- may vanish as the darkness clears away. As he descends from a place of endless light, description of heaven, he then enters into the place of darkness, which is earth, with sin and misery. But as he comes, he comes to vanish the darkness, and the darkness clears away. This refers to John, the Apostle John's description of Jesus' coming in John 1. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name is John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him, that is the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Christ being God is the very revelation of God. You've seen him, you've seen his father. He sheds light on the dark world. We can interpret what we see, our world and our place in it, through what Christ reveals to us. And remember what Christ does is he brings into clarity all the Old Testament revelation. So when we're talking about Jesus being the light, he's confirming the light that has come before. All the Old Testament prophecy that sheds light on our world and our place in it. And then Christ and his fulfillment of all those different aspects of the Old Testament. Uh, He comes and he is the light. And now we have uh, the full roadmap, as it were, to see our way around. The description here is a great ceremony where the angels part and the king descends from his throne on earth to earth. Christ our light. The fourth verse, the last verse of this great hymn, closes with a grand picture the same way it begins starts with that that verse one with that humility of christ coming as a person but then it ends with christ our god and there are many references that speak of or at least the three main references that we can think of that speak of the content of this verse the hymn writer or the original liturgy writers were thinking about look at the verse at his feet the six-winged seraph cherubim with sleepless eye Veil their faces to the presence, as with ceaseless voice their cry, Alleluia, 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 Lord Most High. And of course, the first reference to such a vision is in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And normally we think of God the Father in this context. Yet Revelation 4 speaks similarly of God the Son. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then Revelation 19. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud of 
a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory, the power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And from the throne came the voice, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. In the end, what is it all about? What is the incarnation all about? What is Advent all about? What is Christmas all about? Well, it's not about gifts in the end. It's not about food. It's not about parties. It's not about trees. It's not about Santa. It's not about ringing bells. It's not about a white Christmas. It's not about chestnuts roasting. It's not about sleigh rides, vacation bonuses, or emotional highs. It's not even about personal salvation. It's about God's glory. That's the real message of Christ's coming. And we ought to join with the angels. Hallelujah, hallelujah. The Lord God Almighty. This hymn has many ways uh, in which it points to biblical truth that we can certainly see applied to our day. I want to just give you a few to consider. First, and not in the text so much, but in the story of the hymn itself, I think it is clear that liturgy, that is, The order of worship, that which we consider important enough to put in our times of corporate worship. Liturgy can be a valuable aid in the right worship of God. Let me be clear that I recognize that liturgy, especially a more liturgical uh, approach as we take, can lead into this kind of go-through-the-motions rote-ism. Now, that would be your fault if that's what you did. My fault if that's what I did. But that is a legitimate concern people raise. That's the only good concern I've ever heard, and it's only as good as the person not recognizing how they are to engage with liturgy. C.S. Lewis said there's no way he knew how to worship other than to have form. And so I think uh, that even though in our modern day, well, it's ridiculed, when the days go by, they won't be looking up slide projector slides to see what the church did. They'll want to know, was there any vestige of liturgy in that day called the 21st century? And I hope that they will find, that is, those who come after us, our children's children's children, a richness and a depth in our faith and our theology that should be embodied in the liturgy that we follow. The history of this hymn and its continuing contribution to our worship today it has just shows the great value of liturgy. It leaves a legacy for those who will come after. It offers an anchor of familiarity. I don't know how about you. I don't miss a lot of Sundays because I can't. But when I do go to other places, it's difficult, not because they're not great churches, and there are many great churches, uh, but I sometimes feel like we didn't do everything. I mean, we didn't go through things. We didn't take communion. How many? Two times a year? That's the sacrament. Like you're starving the people of God, I'm thinking. And I look at the process, and this isn't uh, divinely inspired. There are other ways to do this in a biblical fashion. But there is a sense in which a logical flow of meeting God in our sin, recognizing we can't have fellowship with him, uh, bowing down at his mightiness, but knowing that we cannot meet him unless we have a Savior. The Savior revealing himself, we confess our sins. We have peace with God, peace with each other. We're assured of our pardon. Now we can listen to the word of God preached and see how our life ought to be transformed. And we go out encouraged by this as we feed the Lord's Supper. Liturgy is also powerful because it's accountable to Scripture. Every week you have the opportunity to challenge this with Scripture. 
It aids the process of worship. I think this is one lesson an ancient hymn like this reminds us of. Also, though, I would mention to you that Christ came, importantly, as the hymn describes, to demand homage, not to beg people to accept him. The first verse says, For with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage to demand. I mean no offense to some of you who like this particular Christmas hymn, so I won't even name it. So if you don't know it, or if you do know it, uh, you could talk to me about it uh, if you're upset with what I'm about to say. It says, Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for thee. I will never sing that. He is not a beggar. He is the king. He's not begging anyone to come into their heart. There is no such language in Scripture. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and I wish the church would quit pitching Jesus as a beggar. We must be careful to recognize who we are representing. The Bethlehem story is not an analogy for the way he comes to people. Oh, please open your heart for him. Oh, please let the, the Lord of lords, he needs no one to open any door for him. He chose. What's amazing about what he did and what's so awe-inspiring is not this poor thing that no one let him in. It's the fact that he would put up with that to actually create the wood of the manger that he's going to be laid in. He put up with that while someone's laying 50 feet from him in comfort. That's what's amazing about it. Not, oh, poor Jesus, I wish someone would have let him in. But a poor view of Jesus. Christ came to demand homage, not to beg people to accept him. Third, the Lord's Supper is more than a memorial. This is important in our day. The second verse, in the body and the blood, he will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. By the way, I'm totally comfortable with telling you that a lot of this is mysterious. You know, we like to, as Reformed people, have all sorts of answers. Well, I can't give you an exact answer. I just know it's between those two fences for sure that I'm mentioning. One scholar said, Worship is nothing more or less than love on its knees before the beloved, just as mission is love on its feet to serve the beloved. And just as the Eucharist, as the climax of worship, is love embracing the beloved and so being strengthened then for service. We must be careful when trying to quantify the Lord's Supper to not fall into the two extremes of memorialism or transubstantiation. John Knox, one of the great reformers, said this about the Lord's Supper. Therefore, in setting forth bread and wine to eat and drink, he confirms and seals up to us his promise and communion. That is that, is that we shall be partakers with him in his kingdom. And he represents unto us and makes plain to our senses his heavenly gifts and also gives unto us himself to be received with faith and not with mouth, nor yet by transfusion of substance, but so through the virtue or the power of the Holy Ghost, that we, being fed with his flesh and refreshed with his blood, may be renewed both unto true godliness, godliness and to immortality. He says further, John Knox, And also we confess that herewith the Lord Jesus gathered us unto one visible body, so that we are members of one another, and make altogether one body, whereof Jesus Christ is the only head. And finally, that by the same sacrament, the Lord calls us to remembrance of his death and passion, to stir up our hearts, to praise his most holy name. And finally, Knox says on this, in the short treatise on communion that he wrote, For in the sacrament we receive Jesus Christ spiritually, as did the fathers of the Old Testament, according to St. Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 10, And if men would well weigh how that Christ, ordaining his holy sacrament of his body and his blood, spoke these words sacramentally, 
Doubtless, they would never so grossly and foolishly understand them, contrary to all the scriptures and to the exposition of St. Augustine, Jerome, and he lists several others who had a correct understanding of the Lord's Supper. Mysterious, mysterious for sure, but nevertheless, a means of grace that God gives us, feeds us, empowers and strengthens us to praise him. I would also say to you, very simply from this hymn, we learn again that we must look to Christ for truth, for the truth. The third verse is the light of light descends from the realms of endless day that powers, the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. As we join the angel's cry, we recognize that Christ is more than a moral leader. He's more than a fine example. He's more than a teacher. He's more than just an activist. He himself is God. So to God, we go for truth, for he is the truth. And as he comes and we see everything in the world through his, the light of his his revelation, then we have correct understanding. Then we can see what it is his will is for us as his people, as his church. He is the truth. And so we look to him as our authority. Finally, the hymn reminds us wonderfully and beautifully and very simply, worship Christ. Worship him. He is God. Verse 4 says it so well, as with ceaseless voice they cry, Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Lord most high. He is God. He deserves and demands our worship. Again, to summarize this wonderful hymn, let all mortal flesh keep silence and treats us to stand as the King of kings and the Lord of lords descends to earth to vanquish the very powers of hell. Let us pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for your work through the ages in your church. First, in exacting your plan and giving us revelation of that in the scriptures. But also the way you have worked in our forefathers in these 2,000 years since the time of Christ's incarnation. To leave us such a legacy that is open to scrutiny, is open to biblical uh, study, is open to criticism, but is also open to acceptance and practice we thank you for this lord i pray that we would be a people that would leave such a legacy for those who come after us and in all the ways that we can apply these uh, biblical concepts and themes to our lives pray that it would be so so that you would receive more glory pray this in jesus name amen